one of the things I like to do in my leisure is I do embroidery and cross stitch and stuff. And it does require a great deal of focus, but not an in work at all, right? I mean, I'm not working. <laughs> I'm just enjoying myself. And frankly, I can get up at any time. I can change what I'm doing. I can, you know, walk away and, and there's going to be, there's no deadlines. There's no uh, accountability for it. It doesn't produce something necessarily that I can add to my CV. Um, and it's funny too, because one of my friends, when I was talking to her about it, she goes, you know, um, embroidery you can't you'll never be able to sell that it takes too much time you can't sell it for what it's worth and i was like what are you talking about <laughs> like the, the idea that i was just doing it to do it never even occurred hey there i'm katina one of the co-founders of daydreamers and you're listening to the unproductive podcast a weekly chat where we pick the brains of creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers, and tinkerers, all of whom have approached life differently. Together, we're redefining how we spend our free time in a world that's hyper-focused on efficiency at the expense of, well, everything else. We'll dig into the habits, mindsets, and experiences of some of the most creative minds in our world today, so we can all spend a little less time scrolling and a little more time dreaming. Let's get started. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Unproductive Podcast. So today we'll be talking with Celeste Headley, the award-winning journalist, speaker, radio show host on PBS and NPR, and an amazing author. Her latest book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving is a manifesto for all of us humans who are burnt out, lonely, and unfulfilled. Honestly, this sounds like a book everyone needs to read now. Yeah, it was made for the daydreamers community. Exactly, and everyone at large. Yeah, <laughs> especially during this time. Um, yeah, when we heard about Celeste's latest book just a couple of weeks ago, we knew that we had to talk to her. Um, and it was really interesting as Doopy and I reflected on this, that, and we talk about this with Celeste, that it was so cool that she came to a really similar conclusion about what is going on in our world today um, as we did and you know we live so far away we're from different generations different walks of life but it was really um, encouraging to us that this movement is truly starting and we are all going to be kind of redefining what it means to be productive and efficient and truly how we spend our time yeah, definitely. I think that's amazing that, you know, we're all starting to come to a similar conclusion and that will only bring greater momentum. Yeah, exactly. And something that I loved about Celeste and I'm really excited about this conversation for this reason is that um, Celeste's background in investigative journalism lends such a great hand to kind of her research and her ability to share information. So this conversation is truly like a mini history lesson in a way. And she talks quite a bit on how our society has become this way and truly that it's not our fault today. And it's not the fault of technology, but it's something that's been going on for centuries. 
Yeah, I love how you put it. She provides such a great lens with research and her investigative work and, you know, actual record keeping going back in time, which I think oftentimes the topics we talk about get lost in sort of a fluffy context. But when you start looking at hard data for all the skeptics out there, I am one, it it makes like it's crystal clear you know mm -hmm. it's amazing to see that our obsession with productivity and efficiency and work overall has led to unfulfilling and lonely lives and what we can actually do to you know cultivate more joy and leisure time and return to maybe a more prosperous time mm -hmm. in humanity that was where we were and yeah. sort of deviated away from that so yeah one of the things that i love that celeste does is brings out even ancient history and mm -hmm. talks about how as human beings we our natural state is to be in leisure like right. we're not always on super busy human beings that's not how our brains are wired so i think that's a really interesting aspect of this conversation we'll hear about yeah and just as a little sort of teaser we talk about ancient history and we forget that you know even while the egyptians were building pyramids they were enjoying their time and even without so much technology they did so much you know mm -hmm. we have such great reminiscence of their history like the pyramids and the extensive sort of burial um, Ground. grounds and stuff. So I think it's really important to recognize that with the advent of technology, we should have more leisure time, but that's really not the case. Yeah. So where did we go wrong? And I think uh, kind of to wrap up before we listen to our conversation with Celeste, one of the things that she does really well is give tactical tools and tips and ways that we right. can all start to incorporate this into our lives because it's one thing to hear about it and kind of hear people that are doing it well and you look at them and you're like yeah my calendar is packed there's no way that I could actually achieve this but Celeste actually breaks down a bunch of different um, ways that we can all start to inject more leisure and joy into our lives in very specific recommendations so I think that's really helpful. Yeah, so we're super excited to share this conversation with you. But before we do, one quick reminder, um, of course, don't forget to rate and review the Unproductive Podcast on iTunes. This truly just helps more people find the podcast and in turn live more creative, conscious lives. And then in the future, get really cool guests for you guys to hear from. So it's all around a positive thing. So thank you in advance. Let's get started, guys. So we will dive right in. Celeste, thank you so much for being here today. We're so grateful to talk about this topic and have you here, especially during such crazy times. Um, yeah. So thank you for being here my pleasure thanks for having me yeah of course so when doopy and i came across your book we honestly couldn't believe how similar it was to our own experience obviously the title of this podcast is unproductive um <laughs> and it's really <laughs> encouraging people to live in that idle time and kind of um redefine what leisure time means to them so just before we dive into questions we thought it was so interesting and cool how a lot of people are coming to similar um conclusions about what's going on in our modern world yeah and i really hope 
that it becomes a movement, right? Totally. Um, yeah, I hope that what this means is that people are ready to have this conversation because they haven't really been ready for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, society is a pendulum and switch uh, swings left and right. And hopefully, like you said, um, it's starting to go back to sort of the analog era and a little bit more looking reflective, being um, hanging out with friends and family. And this is unfortunately a good starting point with this epidemic. Yeah. 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 And sadly, this isn't one of those trends that where the pendulum speaks, swings back and forth like every five mm. years, like fashion or yeah. um, this has been 250, 300 years coming. So totally. <laughs> let's hope this time. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I know that's definitely something we want to dive into because as we kind of dove into your research, it was so surprising to us that this wasn't something that was just unique to our own modern experience, especially around technology. So um, we're really excited to learn more about that. Great. So before we kind of head into that world, let's talk about you. And we always love kind of bringing our guests back to their life as a kid. Um, We find that creativity really thrives when we didn't have rules per se. So tell us a little bit about what your life was like. Like, what were you into? What did you do in your free time back then? Paint a picture for us. So we lived in a suburb um, called Mission Viejo uh, in Southern California, and I spent half my time there and half my time with my grandparents in Los Angeles. I had three siblings, and we had, um, you know, we had a, a, a pretty normal neighborhood. You know, I'm a child of the 80s, and um, in that, if I got bored, my mother didn't really want to spend all that much time with me, which I think was normal. (laughs) You know, it's only recently that we thought we should get down on the floor and play board games with our kids. Right. So, right. (laughs) Um, she really wanted nothing to do with her children <laughs> until it became dinner time, which again was normal. Yes. Uh, so we, I would get on my, my orange bike orange because I inherited it from my older brother <laughs> and, um, just ride around to see who was home. Right. I mean, I was in the, I mean, I was in, I was in a lot of different clubs. I was in, um, uh, Indian maidens, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of the, um, more culturally aware version of Girl Scouts, mm. perhaps. That, that sounds like I'm. That sounds like I'm dissing Girl Scouts. Not at all. Um, it's just a version of Girl Scouts. I was in 4-H. Um, I was in all kinds of clubs as a kid. I was in the French club. I was in. I was the president of the United Nations. You know, I was a joiner. I liked to yeah. mm-hmm. to do stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think I I feel like I had rather, except for the dysfunctional family, a pretty normal childhood mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and pretty normal for that time. You know, and it's funny, I, I don't know when you guys grew up, but part of the thing that really helped me in understanding this book was to see the difference between the way I was raised and the way I was being, I felt that I needed to raise my own kid, mm-hmm. right? Like in that short period of time, things had changed that dramatically. Totally. You know, it's so interesting you bring that up. We grew up in the early 90s and Long Island. And I feel like Doopy and I were kind of on the precipice of this change of helicopter parenting. And I actually am in the process of writing a book all about millennials and kind of growing up. And one of the pieces of research I did for that was about how parenting has changed so much. And 
millennials kind of as they grew in Gen Z and kind of what you're alluding to is um, there were so many societal and economic shifts that forced that change in parenting. So I really love the way you describe this free-flowing childhood um, because I think Doopy and I were right on the edge of being in the overscheduled childhood and like going to every single, you know, extracurricular at a certain time and like adding it to our resume. Yeah. And it didn't help having that kind of childhood didn't help me as a parent. Mm. I mean, I still over, as I described in the book, over scheduled and overbooked yes. my own son thinking that that was the way to ensure he had the best childhood. Totally. So, yeah. Well, so could you describe that a little bit? And even I know in your book, you had described yourself as a driven kid and something that's still kind of inherent to your personality. But what impact do you think that like societal expectations had on that? And maybe how like free flowing you might have been in your create creativity in your time? It's really is, you know, that's a difficult question to answer, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like how much of it was my personality and how much was societal. I I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know that now as an older person, I am perfectly happy not doing that anymore. But that could be a, a, a function of the fact that I've now accomplished enough where I don't feel the need to be driven. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really difficult to tell, but I do know, um, that it wasn't in my head mm -hmm. that not only was this a uh, part of our family's sort of legacy, um, but also that the reason that they felt that was the best way to live was because that's the way they were told was to be a deserving person, mm -hmm. <laughs> was to be as busy and accomplished as possible and that you were never done, totally. never ended, right? So yeah, I, I I think for most of us, it's impossible to tell what we would have been like without mm -hmm. that pressure, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and I suppose that's true of any ism. It's true of racism or sexism yeah. that it's it's hard to tell who we would have been if not for that. Totally. Right. Yeah, no, I think also one of the things you mentioned earlier is the timing of things. I think back in the day, your parents were a little bit more comfortable with you going down the block by yourself and riding your bike with your friends. Now you have your iPhone and they're tracking you where you're going. So the similar, <laughs> similar vein, we watch some TV episodes and, you know, we're like, that can't air on TV today. Like that, that is yeah. either too racist or too harsh or, you know, and taking that out of perspective or out of the time period is, it makes it hard to distinguish, you know, personality versus society. And, you know, this, what you've brought up is a really good example of something that we're doing and exhausting ourselves doing for no reason. I mean, mm -hmm. children are, are safer today than they ever have been in history. Mm -hmm. So we're spending all this time tracking them and <laughs> protecting them. And yes, it is awful when something happens to a child. That's awful when it's something happens to any human being. Um, for the vast majority of people who spend that much time, you know, tracking and, mm -hmm. and, and all of that stuff, you probably can relax a little bit. Totally. You can put in some very common sense, normal, reasonable limits and boundaries and then relax and get on with your life. Totally. Well, it goes back to that idea of like never being done, right? Yeah. And something that you mentioned about always having to busy ourselves and we're taught that we 
cannot be good enough if we're not doing something extra. Um, so it's kind of interesting even applying that to <laughs> raising kids. Yeah. And every part of our body that, that we have never done enough. Mm -hmm. There's always more. It, I, I know one friend who she does yoga every day and um, she works out with weights, I think like four times a week. Mm -hmm. um, if she ends up listening to this, I hope she doesn't correct me. But um, <laughs> then she also does uh, she has a walking group with her neighbors. Oh and I gosh. mean, literally like constant, constant. Totally. <laughs> and she has decided to take up long distance bike riding. And I said, oh, do you love it? She goes, no, I just, you know, I, I, need, I need that extra push of cardio. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> there is a point at which you've done enough. Mm, it's totally. enough. Be, oh. stop becoming and be. Yes. Celeste spent much of her adult life working to achieve the dream that we all know so well. She had been on that path of success, the one that had led her reaching for more money, more recognition, and more hacks to get it all done, all the time. But one day, after achieving all of that stuff, the TED Talks with millions of views, the best-selling books, and the financial stability she had been seeking since childhood, Celeste realized that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Well, I think you talk about this and in your book, and we're talking about it right now. Most folks follow this typical path. They always keep striving for more, reaching for more, and think that it will come to an end when they maybe reach financial stability, maybe when they have their kids are gone off to college, and everything in life sort of falls into place. So they think. Yeah. And you described this, you know, like you described feeling sick and miserable. What happened when you didn't find that? It was kind of disconcerting. I mean, that's what I had been working for my whole life, mm. right? Um, and only to find it, it still wasn't enough. That I think that was my first reaction. I think I, I misunderstood to such a level that I thought, what else is it I'm supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. Um to fix myself. Right. I, I had to assume that it was something I wasn't doing. And I started looking mm. for sort of li life hacks <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> to figure out what was going yeah. wrong. But yeah, it's really disconcerting when you sacrifice so much for something. In this case, for me, it was financial stability. You know, I was a single mother. I am both in public radio and opera. I I'm clearly making money was never a huge priority for me. <laughs> um, so I, I had been searching for uh, financial stability my whole life. And then um, to find that having it didn't solve the problem. Mm. It was really upsetting, actually. Yeah. I mean, Doobie and I both have experienced that as well. And kind of running on that hamster wheel, as we call it, of kind of continuing to reach for, you know, whatever it is that we're seeking. And then we don't get it. So could you walk us through that moment or moments when you were like where you were in your life, what it felt like and um, kind of what you did about it? I mean, so the first thing for me was that I got very sick mm. um, and I don't get sick very often at all. Mm -hmm. I'm a quite a healthy person. Mm -hmm. So I didn't just get sick. I got like 
sick where you had to stay in bed, like mm. bedridden, sick with bronchitis. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that happened twice in, in less than five months. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. Wow. And I was, and that's when I was like, okay, <laughs> something has to change. Yeah. And so I just started experimenting sort of a la Tim Ferriss in a way that I was going to experiment with my own body in a way. And so I just started following advice. You know, it's interesting too, because my, uh, my first, um, book came about because I was looking for solutions again to my own problem. I wanted to have better conversations. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing research, I realized that the, the advice that we were giving was sorely, sorely, uh, ill advised mm-hmm. and badly researched and didn't work. <laughs> and so I ended up doing the research myself and finding a solution for it. Well, mm-hmm. here the exact same thing happened. Mm-hmm. When I started looking for advice, I realized that the advice I was getting was bad. Um, and so I had to keep digging. And that's also coincidentally where this book came from. Mm, I love that. And so when you went through that process, what was the point when you realized this wasn't just a you problem and a bad advice problem, but like a long societal problem? (laughs) Yeah. My first inkling was that every time I would describe my book to my friends, they would go, Oh my gosh, it's me. (laughs) Like that's, that's me. And they started saying things like, I need this book, like as soon as you're done. So what is it? What's, what's wrong? (laughs) Um, And this started happening a lot also when I would go and do speaking engagements and I would mention I'm writing this book on our obsession with productivity and and efficiency and people would start saying, is that out yet? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, it just became super clear Mm -hmm. that it wasn't just me. And not only that, but like you can't do that historical research, finding, creating um, this a timeline, historical timeline, um, without realizing that this was a cultural societal problem. Yeah, totally. Mm. It's so interesting because when Dupi and I were kind of preparing for our conversation, a lot of the words that we use at Daydreamers and kind of getting to this conclusion of how are we, how can we redefine what we think of time, how we spend our free time. Um, we saw that you use these words, we're lonely, sick, and suicidal. And we use very similar words to get to the conclusion of where our modern society is. Um, and, you know, a lot of us are kind of like walking around like robots and don't necessarily realize that something's wrong until someone like you points out that it is (laughs) you know it's interesting the way I view it pardon me if I interrupted a question but the way I view this is like if you grow up in a family that's dysfunctional Mm -hmm. or or does something weird or unique right and you don't realize it's weird until you get around other people and you realize that not everybody does it totally and then you're like wait (laughs) (laughs) um and i kind of feel like that's sort of where we are that you know obviously this pandemic is awful Mm -hmm. um and nobody in their right mind would would be glad that it's happening but Mm -hmm. one maybe fragile tiny silver lining is that it's it's forcing people to unplug from the matrix and it might make people realize uh that what's what we've been doing are is toxic and not helping us completely we couldn't agree more yeah and on that same line of thought you know can you talk to us about a little bit about the history lesson that you describe in the book and how our society got to this point and, you know, 
like we said multiple times, unfortunately, one of the silver linings could be, you know, a shift. Um, how did this all come about? Where did we go wrong? And, you know, what can we do? Yeah, interestingly enough, when I first started all this research, I really expected to find out that my problem was technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all I had to do was break my addiction to my smartphone and my tablet and my Fitbit and my <laughs> and yeah. and that would fix the problem. And so to my surprise, even when I unplugged for more than a month, mm-hmm. it didn't fix it. And so I started Um, sort of going back in time, I guess what I I started asking myself was, okay, if our current habits are bad for us, Mm -hmm. um, where did these habits start? Where was the beginning? And and, and essentially, I just kept peeling back the layer of the onion Mm -hmm. because every time I got to, you know, I'd I'd peel it back to the 90s. Nope, that's not the beginning because here's what was already already happening at that time. And I'd peel it back to the 80s. Nope. Mm -hmm. And I just kept going decade by decade until I I got to the bad guy, which was... If the bad guy, the thing that has made our society lonely, sick, and suicidal, isn't modern technology, then what could it be? At what point in history did we humans go from leisure-filled to work-obsessed? That's after the break. The Unproductive Podcast is brought to you by Daydreamers. Think of Daydreamers as your modern day garage. We're creating gyms for creativity, both in real life and from the comfort of your home so that we can all redefine how we spend our free time. Our first events and community hubs will be in New York City once we're actually able to get closer than six feet away from strangers, but we'll have plans to create communities all around the world. So head to our website, daydreamerspace.com or find us on social at daydreamerspace to get on the wait list so that we can meet in real life. We'll also share a ton of tips and projects for you to get started on your creative journey at home. We can't wait to start creating with you. Hey there, and welcome back to the Unproductive Podcast and our chat with Celeste Headley, the award-winning journalist, speaker, and author of her latest book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Before our break, Celeste had started to explain the turning point in our history when we became obsessed with work, efficiency, and productivity to the detriment of everything else. And this turning point wasn't just a few decades ago. It's literally been centuries in the making You know, this isn't just something that our generation or even our parents did wrong. Celeste opens her book with a quote from the British philosopher Bertrand Russell's and his 1932 essay on leisure time, which says, It will be said that while a little leisure is pleasant, men would not know how to fill their days if they only had four hours of work out of 24. Insofar as this is true in the modern world, it would have not been true at any earlier period. There was formerly a capacity for lightheartedness and play, which to some extent has been inhibited by the cult of efficiency. Remember, this essay and this quote was written in 1932. So as Celeste discovered in her research, 
If Bertram Russell was writing about this complete dismissal of leisure time in 1932, then when did all of this begin? When did we make idleness the bad guy? Let's find out. The bad guy, which was the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, I, I have no idea uh, where you guys went to school or how your schooling was. But I can say I had very, very good schooling. And yet nobody ever really impressed upon me how much changed with the Industrial Revolution. Totally. I don't think I realized that, you know, what I ended up finding was that we as human beings had lived one way for 300,000 years and change. Mm. And then the Industrial Revolution came along and we changed almost all of it. Oh my gosh. But by the time we get to where we are right now, we changed almost all of it. <laughs> and that's had really horrible impacts on our health and our well-being and our happiness. Mm-hmm. And it all started when we began to focus, when our, our, our lives began focused around work instead of life, mm-hmm. <laughs> our family, mm-hmm. our, 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 the things that we love to do. And, you know, it's, it's incredible to, to think that it seems simplistic. And yet you literally can find, as I did, all of the evidence there. You can track it back just like you're following a, a trail of breadcrumbs. Totally. It's so interesting. And something that Doobie and I love that you talk about is this cult of efficiency. Um, could you talk about how that paired, like this idea of efficiency also paired with working all the time? Because I feel like there's another layer of how we spend our time. It's that we're always trying to hack and optimize and like do the quickest thing the best way but then we're still working forever and still like feel so busy you know yeah and interestingly enough that quote comes from the very mm. first quote in the book which yes. is from Bertrand Russell and he wrote that in the I think the 1930s yes right, <laughs> right? like yeah. just to put it in context oh um God. Yeah, exactly. So this has been coming for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, this idea that, it's, you know, it, again, it tracks back to this idea that you're never done, that there's always a better way to do it. Um, it comes from this idea that you can you can improve on everything and and someone else can always invent a better mousetrap. And and part of it is is absolutely natural. It is our human nature and it's a beautiful part of human nature that we are always trying to improve but the idea that everything has to be improved that nothing is good as it is that's the idea that is hurting us and this cult of efficiency i honestly i think when i read that uh, essay from bertrand russell in mm-hmm. praise of idleness it was like a light bulb went on inside my mind because i suddenly realized it is a cult mm-hmm. that is exactly what we're in Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to be deprogrammed. Mm-hmm. We couldn't agree more. I'm trying to double click on or diving back into the it's industrial. even in our language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, into the industrial revolution, even this conversation, you know, it makes me think that, you know, we weren't satisfied with automobiles, as an example, being built by hand. So we created the modern assembly line and that became factories. And then, you know, we were putting out more products that were standardized. Is that the genesis of this 
desire for efficiency and productivity? And then how did it translate from business into personal life such that it's become a cult? Um, and I think those, those two sort of, you know, business and life sort of overlaps, but love to get your thoughts. So here's where I think it really started. I think the biggest shift, um, was when we stopped being task-based because, Mm. you know, we, it used to be that if you needed a, if your water jug broke, Mm -hmm. you go to a ceramicist or a potter and you get a new water jug. And the value of that water jug is the value of that jug, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Here's, here's what it costs to make me. Here's what I need to sell this for. Mm -hmm. And you pay it and that's it. Then you started getting factories and people started realizing, Hey, there's no end to the profit. Mm -hmm. Like when I make enough water jugs to fill every order that I have, I can just keep making water jugs and maybe Mm. keep selling them, Mm -hmm. right? And improve my profits even more. And the problem with this, of course, is that instead of us making as much as we need and moving on, we now have this idea (laughs) that the job is never done, right? Mm -hmm. And and what this creates is, um, again, the factory line of our lives. So There also came a point in time where factory owners and managers realized, well, hey, if I start sharing the profits with my workers, Mm -hmm. then they will have enough money and they won't come into work. And then my profits will go down. So let's Mm. go back to the water jug again, right? So you're making enough water jugs to, to fill all your orders. You realize you can make more and maybe continue making profit. And then you realize, well, the market's soft. It's flooded, pardon the pun, with water jugs. (laughs) But if I lower the price of water jugs, Mm. then I can maybe still sell some more. So you see that what we ended up doing was taking those profits and instead of investing them into free time for our workers, instead of saying, okay, we have enough profit. Now we can give everybody, they only have to work four days a week, which would have been happening as productivity increased. Mm -hmm. We got better and better and better at making water jugs. Now we can make the same amount in three days instead of five. Mm -hmm. Nope. Instead, they were like, okay, we got to get these water jugs off the shelves. (laughs) Let's keep making them. And now let's go into new markets and see Mm -hmm. if maybe these people who live in a town that's full of water jugs might want a different colored water jug. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's where I think it started was this idea of constant, constant growth. Mm -hmm. But does that have an underlying sort of foundation in human nature to never be fulfilled and never and continuing to desire more? You're, you know, going back to sort of a caveman belief. They were surviving, but they were like, we want to do better for our society. So we're going to make tools such that we can eat more and protect ourselves more. So how did like the line get pushed so far? Right. Yeah, I I don't think that was the case. I mean, and the reason I say that I don't think there's necessarily any evidence that left to our own devices, we worked all day. And the reason I say that is because we have the labor records going back to the time of the ancient Greeks. Mm -hmm. And we know that's not true. We have people complaining about workers doing their work in half the day and then lying around eating and drinking, which I totally (laughs) am happy to do. (laughs) Thank you. Right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we have that already. The thing is, is that another thing, sadly, that the industrial revolution did is it, it took away, it disempowered 
people. So before mm-hmm. that time, what you had were artisans, right? Mm-hmm. And they owned their own tools and which made them all these little tiny business owners. There's also shockingly the, the, the industrial revolution um, took away the business and ended the small businesses of a bunch of women mm. who were lacers and they created textiles and they had their own businesses. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was a time when we were in control of our own, the tools of production, sorry to borrow mm-hmm. a Marxist uh, term. Um, when you can see that when it was time for us to knock off, we knocked off. And when our family members were getting married, we took two weeks. Totally. Right. <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, there, there's not, I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence that um, left to our own devices, we would work all the time. There, there's even good evidence that I document in the, the book of employers stealing time by changing the clocks mm. so that the workers wouldn't realize that it was time to go home. Oh wow. Gosh, yeah. So mischievous. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's so interesting you bring up the uh, kind of ancient times because when Doopy and I read that Bertrand Russell quote um, at the beginning of your book, it reminded us so much of almost a similar but opposite quote um, f- that we used in the early days of creating daydreamers. And we have the quote right now, it's a life well lived requires activities that serve no other purpose than the satisfaction that action itself generates. One must embrace pursuits that provide you a source of inward joy. And I think that deep knowledge of understanding what leisure actually is um, seems to be proven and very uh, common, you know, back in the ancient Greek. Oh, yeah, they knew. I mean, they they were task based. So they would do a they would harvest all of the fields. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is incredibly labor intensive and took them a long time. And then what happened? immediately after the harvest festival, which was weeks Why? long, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh so my gosh, totally. yeah, we knew how to party and it, yeah. was ev- it was everywhere, all over the globe that wasn't isolated to one culture or the other. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we had one culture that was re- great at relaxing and another that wasn't. Nope. We all knew how to enjoy ourselves. Mm, yeah. So interesting. So could you tell us, fast forwarding to now, what you would say leisure time means to you? Like what would be a good definition for our audience to kind of work off of? So leisure time is when you um, are doing something that doesn't require your mind to focus on a a task. Mm. So, and I, and I say that judiciously because, you know, I, uh, one of the things I like to do in my leisure is I do embroidery and cross stitch and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it does require a great deal of focus, mm-hmm. but not an in work mm-hmm. at all. Right. I mean, I'm not working. Right. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> enjoying myself. And frankly, I can get up at any time. I can change what I'm doing. I can, you know, walk away and, and there's going to be, there's no deadlines. There's no uh, accountability for it. It doesn't produce something necessarily that I can add to my CV. Um, and it's funny too, because one of my friends, when I was talking to her about it, she goes, you know, um, embroidery, you can't, you'll never be able to sell that. It takes too much time. You can't sell it for what it's worth. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like the the idea that I was just doing it to do it never even occurred. Totally. 
I think that example is so prevalent in today's world that anything that you pick up as a hobby or a leisure activity just for your pure enjoyment can be made into a side hustle. And some have done that to make it into their successful career. So now people only look for that one pathway, this thing whatever it may be, can I monetize it? Will I be able to either get more social presence out of this rather than keeping that activity purely for the joy in itself? Exactly. Our 250-odd-year journey in this cult of efficiency doesn't need to continue. In fact, it's completely up to us all of us, to go back to the days of leisure. I mean, we know it's in our bones as human beings, right? Those ancient Romans really knew how to relax. But it might seem overwhelming to get started. Some of us say we're too busy or we're too addicted to our phones. Our calendars don't allow it. Well, Celeste has a solution for that. Coming up, she breaks down exactly how to get started on your leisure-filled journey, no matter what your calendar looks like. So what would you say to those people, though, that are constantly, you know, looking to hack their lives, figure out their next sort of career move or become more efficient? How can they shift their minds and like undo those layers that have built up i mean first of all i'd say be kind to yourself because it's not easy and um frankly this is something that has been coming as i mentioned for hundreds of years it's Mm -hmm. not going to happen overnight it's going to take intentional work um you can't just say okay from now on i'm gonna enjoy myself Nope. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I would say is that this isn't entirely your fault. Mm. It's okay. Um, You have literally been brainwashed to believe this. And part of that was because if you can keep workers on the edge of financial disaster, you can make them convinced that they need to work harder. If you can make them always afraid of their for their jobs, you can mm-hmm. convince them to work harder. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been part of our growth mindset is to, and it's part of the reason why we're at this place where the income gap is so ridiculously wide, mm-hmm. is because again, if you let people earn enough money, they stop working. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't entirely on all of us. I mean, think for a moment about what you lose when you go from full-time to part-time, mm-hmm. right? You don't just lose half of your pay by going from 20, 40 hours a week to 20. You lose everything. Yeah. Right. You lose <laughs> everything. <laughs> so like literally the system is set up to punish people for cutting back on hours. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you mentioned this before, hopefully we're at that moment in time where this is growing momentum. But for a person that's looking at this building momentum, you still feel like you're pioneering. You're going out there to fight the establishment, quote unquote, (laughs) taking a Bernie Sanders quote here. But how do you encourage those folks to go ahead and either become more task oriented as in, in our history and not feel that they're going to get left behind such that they're just making it up at a later point in life or it passes on to the next generation. 
Yeah, that not everybody has control over their own hours, and and that includes not only people who are reasonably financially stable, mm-hmm. um, but people who have to work, you know, several jobs just to make their bills. Right, mm-hmm. totally understandable. But you can start super small, um, and one of the first things you have to do is stop looking to your electronics for relaxation. It's really tempting when you're exhausted and you finally get a break to sit down and like page through Facebook or Instagram or whatever, TikTok videos. Totally. The, the, <laughs> the problem is that to your brain, there is no distinction between that and work. As far as your brain is concerned, you're still working, which Hmm. means if that's what you do all day, if you're taking a five minute break here, a 10 minute break there, and you're just really quickly looking through email or checking back up on social media, as far as your brain is concerned, you have worked all day long without a break. Mm -hmm. It's not helping you. It's making you more exhausted. So one of the first things you have to do is stop looking to your electronics during those short periods of time when you get a little bit of time off. Mm -hmm. I love that recommendation. One other thing that um, we've been thinking about a lot is that obviously leisure and free time is not looking at your phone and scrolling through your phone, but it's also not these things that we need to survive, like sleeping and eating and things that a lot of people put in that bucket of leisure time. Like if I get, you know, an extra hour on a Saturday, I'm just going to make up for lost time and sleep in. Um, So how could you kind of, do you have any thoughts or recommendations for people who are kind of understanding what these new creative habits that they might build and kind of how they could separate out the stuff they need to survive into the stuff that they are doing for pure joy, like embroidering or maybe sourdough bread or something of that nature. I just made like the perfect sourdough after mm. failing over and over oh and over. Um, yes. Yeah, so that resonates first... so much with me. I, I've, I've <laughs> been doing this for sourdough. I wouldn't oh, say hard. pro, but it's he's a, like... yeah, I just started experimenting with like seeds now and <laughs> like, I didn't have a recipe or anything and it was like a disaster for the first yeah. one. The second one was like, you know, it held up, but yeah, just so thrilled. He's been him. experimenting for a couple of years. So. Yeah. I mean, okay. So a, a couple things. The first thing is that you have to find out where your time is going. Mm-hmm. You know, a very underrated and frankly rare talent now is time perception. Mm -hmm. Time perception is how accurately do you know how you spend your time? And the truth of the matter is, is that we're not very accurate in general. We don't have very good time perception. So while you think you don't have time to have a hobby, you probably do. Mm -hmm. But you have to figure out where the rest of that time is going. I'm not doubting that you feel overwhelmed. I absolutely believe that. Mm -hmm. But let's figure out why you're feeling overwhelmed despite working fewer hours. And that requires you to keep a journal. You're going to have to track for, you know, however long you can where your hours are going and be as honest as possible because no one's going to see it. Mm-hmm. If you spent 90 minutes looking at boots mm-hmm. on Zappos, you're the only one that needs to know that. And the more honest you are, the more it's going to help you. Then once you see where your hours are going, and frankly, you're going to find out that you spend way more time on email and social media and just mm-hmm. like idly browsing the inner internet, mm-hmm. right. you spend way more time doing that than you realize. And so you have all the time, you have the time to get the sleep and you have the time to do the, to do the, to the, do the hobbies Mm -hmm. and the sourdough. The other thing (laughs) I would say 
And this doesn't relate to someone who really enjoys experimenting, but for both of us, don't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel. Mm. Like why, why mm -hmm. do that? Like for me, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's totally unnecessary. Um, for, for me to like redo the work that someone else has done. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I was doing sourdough, I went to the America's test kitchen. I mean, for, for God's sake, mm -hmm. these people do make 400 different versions of the exact same recipe <laughs> until they get yeah. it perfect. I may end up tweaking it, but I'm certainly not going to start over, totally. <laughs> you know? So it's like, why make it hard on yourself? Because you have to ask yourself for what reason? Mm. Right? What is what is the purpose of redoing this when it's been done before? That's really the question for me. And if you can find, if you can really justify and say, here's why it's really important that I redo this and reinvent it. And again, this sounds like I'm judging your sourdough habits is I'm not at all. <laughs> I, know, I know nothing about your life. <laughs> but um if there's no reason for it, then pfft, Totally. You know, rely on someone else's expertise. We are, after all, human beings, a hive mind. We work best in conjunction with one another. We work best when we're building on the efforts of other people. So relax. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, this was something I decided to do in my leisure time. I took a class and learned oh, yeah. the techniques. And something that you said towards the end of the conversation, you have to have an intention as to why you're doing it exactly. you know, a different way. If you're looking to explore your creativity or do something to challenge you and make you feel like you're learning something new again, then that's an intention that you set rather than, you know, feeling frustrated and not enjoying the process because I think that is, you know, what creativity is, is building upon what someone else has done and tweaking it, maybe adding additional elements to make it your own or however you would like it to be so. Yeah. Right. But it shouldn't be so you can brag on social media that you made something from scratch. Exactly. That's, that should not be why it's, why it is. Right. Completely. We actually have a saying at Daydreamers called create, not curate, um, which mm -hmm. is all about this idea of creating for yourself and doing it not for taking a picture, telling people, or bragging exactly what you're saying looking so. for others approval yeah on you know these social media platforms yeah exactly exactly that conversation brought me to one more question before we start to wrap up um Something that I think people really struggle with, with leisure activities, especially going back to this idea of, you know, when you were talking about your childhood being driven, all of us having these to-do lists and kind of achievement-focused mind is that we don't want to experiment. We're trained that failing is bad, right? And yeah. leisure is so much about finding joy in those times of quote-unquote failing or experimenting so are there any kind of mindsets or ideas that you might share for people who are just starting to dip their toe into the leisure experimentation yeah it's funny because I'm a Buddhist and one of the things mm -hmm. one of the principles of of, of Buddhism is beginner's mind mm, um, yes. which is to go into whatever you're efforts are assuming you don't know anything about it, mm -hmm. no matter how much of an expert you are to go in with a beginner's mind. Um, the idea of course being that there, you may don't, you don't want to make assumptions about stuff that blocks you from learning and growing. Um, but in order to do that, you have to be okay with failure, right? Like you're going to end up trying some stuff out, hopefully mm -hmm. that 
you're not good at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, and if you don't, then you're not actually growing. Mm. So in order for you to really, really grow, you have to try stuff that's new. You have to ask yourself this question all the time. What if I'm wrong? What if this is Mm -hmm. dumb? What if this is the worst course? Mm -hmm. And, and that's what leads you to new innovations and creative ideas because you hopefully you are seeing things from a new perspective that assumes you're you don't know what you're doing i love that so awesome so we love to always conclude with two questions that we like to ask our guests and you know we talk about on this podcast and and we've been talking about leisure time what do you always do to stay inspired in your free or leisure time in our every day on busy, you know, checking email sort of culture? Um, I mean, the one, absolutely the one thing I always do is I make time for uh, social, authentic mm. social interactions. I mean, even with the people that irritate me and I don't want to hang out with, I think I don't want to <laughs> hang out with and avoid, mm-hmm. um, I make sure that uh, I, I hang out with them anyway, right? Mm. And I end up liking it. And yet, even though I end up enjoying myself almost all the time, right? then it doesn't make the next time easier. <laughs> so totally. I sort of have to really, really focus and remind myself, listen, here's what happened last time. And you had a great time. Totally. So chill out. Um, so yeah, that is the one thing I always do. And frankly, sometimes the reason I really enjoy someone's company is because they are not challenging to me because mm-hmm. they think I'm awesome and compliment me and agree that whomever else this other person was, was totally off base and is a jerk. <laughs> and, um, you know, because that makes me feel comfortable. And so sometimes hanging out with those people I don't like is, is like the best thing I can do for my mind. Mm-hmm. So I have to intentionally and in a very focused way force myself to socialize with everybody i love that distinction between you know an authentic in-person interaction where most many people will agree that they're interacting but it's digital and you can choose to walk away from that conversation unfollow that friend or not partake but when you're actually with someone you have to work through those complexities and and you have to decide to return. But I think that is human beings as a species. We're social. And I think doing it in an authentic way is definitely should be encouraged more. Yeah. Although I should say that it, it, talking on the phone, as long as you can hear their actual voice, that's, agree. that's good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's in almost everything in life. It's the difficulty that gives it value. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll give an example mm-hmm. um, in terms of apologies, right? So people have done a lot of work on apologies and when they are effective and when they're not. And the fact of the matter is that getting from I'm sorry all the way to you're forgiven, it's okay, and being able to move on, it's kind of a complicated neurological process Mm. Um, and physiological, frankly. Mm -hmm. But it all starts in the part of your brain where your empathy resides. Like, again, being simplistic about (laughs) your brain, um, (laughs) it's sort of the seat of compassion. And so we can watch on fMRIs when that is activated and when it's not. And we know that if you read an apology in any any form, 
whether it's a handwritten note, mm-hmm. whether it's um, a text or an email, we love sending asaris by email, don't we? <laughs> yeah. That part of the brain never lights up, huh. which means oh, the wow. process that leads toward forgiveness and moving on never begins. Wow. So it's as though you never said you were sorry, essentially. Oh, interesting. The, but as soon as you hear somebody say it in their own voice, mm-hmm. it's more difficult, obviously. Why? The people struggle. They don't know what to say. They feel awkward. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that we see them struggling. And then all of a sudden, the light comes on in the compassion mm-hmm. part of our brain. We feel compassion for them and the process begins. Mm-hmm. And we see this over and over and over that without the sound of a human voice, it's as though it was never said. Wow. That is so interesting. And I think especially so important as we're all kind of sitting huddled in our homes today, how we think we're connecting with people and asking how they're doing, especially during this difficult time while texting or emailing. But just the simple process of picking up a phone has such a deeper connection. Yeah. And I know you guys are wrapping up, but I wanted to give you one more example, just because people are so convinced that the email is just as good. Mm -hmm. So one of the studies that I cite in the book was where they had a group of young girls Mm -hmm. and they made them do something very stressful. They had them um, solving math problems in front of an audience. Mm. And then afterwards, throughout this entire experiment... Yeah, right? (laughs) Awful. So throughout this whole thing, they were monitoring their cortisol levels, their stress hormones, their their Mm -hmm. stress indicators. So they split them into four groups. Um, One of the groups, uh, nothing happened. They came off stage, and obviously there was absolutely no contact with anybody who loved them, nothing. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, their stress levels did not fall. They remained Mm -hmm. as stressed Mm -hmm. as ever. Then there was another group where they came off stage and their mom was waiting for them. Mm -hmm. And you see this huge dip in stress levels. Both of those are expected outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there were two more groups. One of them got a text from their mother and the other one got a phone call from their mother. Well, the, the girls who got a text from their mother Um, they saw almost no dip also in their stress levels. Mm -hmm. It made almost no impression upon them and didn't really help them to feel better. Mm -hmm. Now, the girls who got a phone call from their mom saw almost an equal dip in their stress levels to those whose mother was waiting backstage. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the times when we text someone, happy birthday, or I hope you're okay, or I'm so sorry to hear about your mother, or whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. and we think we've accomplished something, and we've accomplished nothing. Wow. That is such a moving piece of research, especially kind of in all the ways that we're talking about how we feel so busy, we don't have time, so we resort to these simple, efficient ways of making connection. Um, But it takes just as much time to call someone. So I think that's really important for our community, which is so much talking about um, making deep, authentic connections. And if you think about it, you're wasting more time Sending mm-hmm. that text, that's just completely wasted time because yeah. it didn't really do anything. Totally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It goes back to, you know, what we talked about where we're looking for another hack. And the hack yep. is to let me send it via text message. But similarly, I would, you know, I would try to draw a line between the industrial revolution being like we're hacking society to become more productive and efficient, mm-hmm. but we've gone so much further away how our species is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. 
I love that. Amen, brother. <laughs> now we just got to get like 90% of the, the world on board. Or exactly. More. <laughs> or more. We're starting the movement with the three of us. That's right. Um, okay, great. So our last question that we always like to ask is um, really interesting and kind of gives a hint as to where your mind is at. So the question is, at what age were you most creative and playful and how can you channel that into your life right now? So I was most creative, not at the same age when I was the most playful, I think, Mm -hmm. but I think it probably would have been if I was to try to find the time when those two were on average, the highest Mm -hmm. would have been, um, the time around, um, when I was going, was when I was an undergraduate, um, Mm -hmm. the age between like, say 18 and 22. Um, that's when I would make story tapes and write poetry and, um, all this, all these kind of other little things I occupied my time with and, Mm -hmm. you know, did my home diet, DIY projects at home, but because I, that time you couldn't look on Pinterest, they usually looked terrible. Um, (laughs) and I was totally okay with that. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been the age when I was, I was absolutely the most creative. Yeah. And are there any kind of ideas that maybe you could channel from that time or even recommend to our community, um, that they could take into account right now? Yeah, for me, it was was a lot about repurposing the things that I loved, right? Mm -hmm. Like I started making story tapes because I loved sitting. I had bought myself this very expensive rack stereo set, a Yamaha stereo Mm -hmm. set, which Mm -hmm. at the time was like the shizzle, right? Yamaha is still um, great. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I loved sitting there and listening to all my CDs. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, I was like, well, how else can I do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, that's when I started making like tapes for my friends and I combined what I do in terms of storytelling and stuff and created mm-hmm. these stories. And so for me, part of the idea is like figuring out a repurposing, um, of that. what else can I do with this thing that I love? Is there some other way to, to involve this in my life? Cause guess what? This makes me happy. Mm. Those small moments of joy. Right. Yeah. And why not making them bigger moments? Yeah, totally. I think also one thing you mentioned is you were very okay with the project not being, you know, Pinterest picture ready. And I think that is channeling that today to feel like you can do this thing because it brings you joy and you can share it with others when you want to. And if you so choose to, but it's still magical on its uh, in itself even if you choose not to. oh yeah i wrote a lot of really horrible poetry but i really enjoyed writing <laughs> really enjoyed writing it and it's not going to become a moth story hour yes. where i talk about how you know what i mean i'm not going to repurpose that i just liked i just liked writing it and forcing my friends to listen to it um, <laughs> big yeah, moments it, of joy <laughs> exactly but, but made joyful for me yeah not so much for them <laughs> <laughs> they heard your voice, so they connected with you right, on a right. deep level. That's right. <laughs> exactly so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this time and conversation. We are so grateful, and we can't wait to share it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for reading the book. Yeah, of course. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to our chat with Celeste Headley. 
What did you think? How cool was that? Yeah, that was great. I it was like she was reading our minds yeah. and the conversation <laughs> flew by so quickly. I think we could have had another hour with her and it yeah. would have been amazing. It reminds me when I was reflecting on it, it reminds me of the idea from Liz Gilbert's book Big Magic when she talks mm. about how creative ideas can jump from one person to another mm-hmm. and you're connected through right. with that like magical invisible line and i feel like we're connected to celeste in that way yeah <laughs> hopefully it goes both ways yeah it? yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not just us connected to her um but yeah i mean i think if we were to highlight this whole conversation because it was so aligned it would you know we could talk about every single thing that we chatted about with her um but let's each pull out one of our favorite things from the conversation so one thing that i really liked was doing a time analysis and figuring out where you spend your time throughout your day i think most people underestimate the low quality leisures i'm Mm -hmm. doing this in quotes right now um and are overestimating what they're doing of high quality leisure. So that may be like working out or connecting with family. You know, I would encourage everyone to actually do that because oftentimes when we talk to our friends or people in our network, they're like, I don't know how you guys find time to do that. Mm -hmm. I think everyone has time. It's how you choose to, you know, allocate that time. We all have 24 hours a day and most of us are not sleeping, you know, the required eight hours. So what is going on with the rest of the time? Yeah. And I think what she says from that is whenever we are using our phones or technology or scrolling through social media, our brain registers that as work. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't actually allow us to turn off. Yeah, I think the tips are very simple to execute, but they're very hard to make habits. Mm -hmm. And that is a very powerful thing because you can you know just stop checking your phone in the morning and decide that that's going to be five minutes that i'm going to just do some deep breathing work or Mm -hmm. i'm going to spend some time talking to my significant other or you know anyone else about their day before i get started and that's such a fresh great aspect you know yeah well i think on that note the thing that really resonated for me in this conversation that this idea of productivity has been germinating in our society for so long Mm -hmm. like it's not just a past few decades thing or we're not the first ones to experience it um i think that was really refreshing for me to hear about and then on the flip side something that i didn't know that we talked about in our conversation with celeste was that as human beings our natural state is to be in leisure Mm -hmm. um And I feel like in our society today, we're always hearing about how people are too busy, their minds are running too much, and it feels like our natural state as humans is to always be anxious and stressed, but that's kind of just a product of our society, and if we just allow ourselves to stop tuning into that, then we are chill human beings, you know, which I think is really cool to know. Yeah. Lastly, I would say since I've sort of left working a corporate job, I feel I have more leisure time. And in that leisure time, I'm always thinking of new ideas. I think people around me are starting to get annoyed that I'm like, (laughs) this is the next new thing I want to do. But I think that goes to show that if you use that time to be a leisureist and, you know, 
are in that state of mind, I would imagine our society would take leaps and bounds ahead yeah. in every field possible. And everyone can do it. Right. Yeah, totally. I love that. Well, so next week we'll be chatting with Ronnie Fayag. He's the founder of the lifestyle and streetwear brand Kith and overall one of the coolest human so beings cool. we've ever met. Um, this conversation centers all around Ronnie's journey from being a shoe store stock boy to becoming one of the most followed fashion icons in the streetwear and sneaker world and you know has built this amazing long lasting brand um that's all around collaboration and partnership which is really cool and most importantly how ronnie's been able to stay humble and connected to his roots through that entire journey it's really really inspiring yeah it was an amazing conversation so check that out next week and lastly, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. This simply helps more people find this podcast, get inspired to live creative lives, and get really cool, interesting guests on the podcast to share their stories with y'all. Continue sharing with us on Instagram how you're being a leisureist by tagging us at Daydreamer Space. See you next week. Until next time.